Those are tough words to hear from Samuel. If you remember back, Samuel was called by God to bring a restoration of right and true religion to Israel. Eli's sons had been doing what was evil in the sight of God. And so God raised up Samuel to bring back this restoration and purity. And I truly believe that in our time and in our, uh, right now, where we live, that Christ is doing a work to purify his church. Um, I really believe that. I can see it clearly. And I invite you to struggle through that process as well. Because every one of us are members of the Bride of Christ. Um, And as we join and as we assemble every Sunday morning, it is a powerful thing for the Bride of Christ to assemble to glorify God. But it is a weak thing for us to have the appearance of godliness, but lack its power. So I pray that you let Christ do a work in your heart continually as he purifies his church, as he purifies his bride. And this is an overarching view we see in 1 Samuel. Um, My name is Rob Lewis, and I'm the preacher down at the Calvary campus, and I'm always, always honored to be able to come and spend time with you guys here at the Owasso campus. And we're continuing our study this morning Uh, We've been in Samuel for a few weeks now, and last week we took a look at chapter 8, and what happened in chapter 8 was a a dreadful thing, that they would request a king and reject God as their king, and so what Samuel says is he says, you don't want a king, but then God speaks to Samuel, and, and, and God says, Samuel, don't worry, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king, and he says, now give in, basically, Permit them to have a king. Do what they say. Give them a king. And so what we see from chapter 8 to where we are today, chapter 12 in 1 Samuel, we saw in chapter 9, Saul is chosen. Chapter 10, Saul is anointed. Uh, Then chapter 11, uh, he sees some victory. Saul does, and the Ammonites are defeated. Then where we are today, chapter 12, Samuel's farewell speech, and there's a lot here, and it's a beautiful place to stop, I believe, before we prepare for next week, which is actually chapter 15. So today we're in chapter 12, but what happens from chapter 12, chapter 13, Saul fights the Philistines, has some victory, but then he also offers an unlawful sacrifice because he's not willing to wait on Samuel. And then then we'll get into chapter 15 where God actually rejects Saul, and that'll be what we'll be hanging out uh, and, and doing next week is taking a look at that. But this week, chapter 12, you know, it is an incredible thing to look at the Word of God and see how it had had purpose and meaning and truth that was communicated in this first order audience, which was in the 10th century BC. But this scripture has absolutely something to say to us as 21st century Christians. And so my prayer this morning is that we will look for scripture to teach us about the rebellion of man, the faithfulness of God, as well as we will be convicted to walk according to his word, living in a right manner, it is worthy of being called the people of God. And we will see these things here this morning. And one of the main things I want you to have in your heart as we get going this morning is God is faithful and will not forsake us even when we reject him as our king in moments of sin and rebellion. God is faithful and will not forsake us even when we reject him as our king in moments of sin and rebellion. And the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is that a kingdom of faithfulness and mercy rightly judges and upholds the kingdom of man. 
A kingdom of faithfulness and mercy rightly judges and upholds the kingdom of man. And as we get going this morning, we'll make three stops. We'll take a look at this concept that there is no new rebellion. Second, we'll take a look that there is no new king. Even though they ask for a king, they don't get a new king. They get an addition, but they don't get a new king. And then three, we'll look at this idea that there is no new principle. Comfort, admonishment, and exhortation. Those are the same things that we'll experience today. So there is no new rebellion, no new king, and no new principle. Comfort, admonish, and exhort. And as we get going, uh, I want to put up on the screen for us to consider really quickly. Do you know about comfort, admonishment, and exhortation? Because what we see in this passage is we see all three of those things. The people of Israel are comforted, yet they're told the truth about their sin, and then they're exhorted to go and live a different way, to go live according to the truth that they have received. And so I ask you, because I struggle with it myself, do I know about being comforted? Do you know about being comforted? Do you know about being admonished, rebuked, refuted, corrected? And do you know what it is like to be exhorted to walk in the light? So as we start this morning, I want that to be in your hearts and your minds, and this, I truly believe, is what it means to live the Christian life, to live in comfort, in the comfort of Christ, yet being admonished when we sin and exhorted to walk according to the ways of holiness and righteousness, which we see here. So let's jump into our text with our first stop that we're going to make with this concept of no new rebellion. Do you see in verse 12, it says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. Do you see that? This is actually referring back to chapter 8 when the people came and said that they wanted a king. So Samuel's saying, do you remember? Do you remember when this is what you did? You came and you said to me, no, you don't want God. When he was the Lord who was your king and he was reigning over you, you rejected him and you asked for a king to reign over us. Why? Because of this fear of this king of the Ammonites. And so there's this concept here that when they asked for a king, they said, no, a king shall reign. But what was actually true, the reality of part of what, what Samuel is unpacking is, is some of the reality that's here, that they rejected God as their true king. They rebelled against him as their true king. And he makes it clear, this is something we can't miss. When you saw, you said, What did they say? But a king shall reign over us. But here Samuel does not want them to miss this point. He says, when you asked that, the Lord your God was your king. So keep that in mind. There is no new rebellion. The same rebellion that they are experiencing here and that we're reading of is the same rebellion that we walk in every single day. And so many different people around the world are experiencing the same rebellion that the Israelites wanted. Why? Uh, Because they wanted a king. They wanted someone else. Well, what's interesting about a king? A king has authority. A king has say. A king gets to tell you what to do and when to do it. And what we have to recognize is that when we say a king rules, that means that there is this sense in which they are able to come in and interfere with our lives. And so what Israel had done was that they had failed to recognize that they already had a king. 
And if they did recognize they had a king, they didn't want him as their king. What they wanted was somebody else, someone a little more like them. I don't know. We can't judge their motives of exactly what was going on in this. Uh, but it's no different than what we do today when we reject Christ as the true king. It is no different when believers literally will look at the word of God and say, I see it, I read it, I hear it, I understand it, and I reject it, and I'm going to go do whatever else I want to do. You do that. When you do that, you are doing exactly what Israel was doing. When I do that, I am doing exactly what Israel is doing, is saying, no, but I'd rather someone else rule over me than you. We're literally telling the king that we will not submit to his authority. We're literally telling the king that we would rather be submitted to somebody else. And did they have good reason to be dissatisfied with their current king? No. For he had been faithful and merciful and kind to them all the way. Yet here they are saying, all of that stuff, yeah, that's great, cool, but we don't care. We want a new king. And that's what you and I do today. There's no new rebellion. When people say, that maybe there's a God, but they do not want to serve him, it's no new rebellion. And when we who know Christ, when we who know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when we have walked with our God, yet choose to walk in sin, it's no new rebellion. It's no different than what they were doing right there. So Samuel says, you asked for this, but you asked for it when the Lord was your king. But then check this out, verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Do you see that? What I want you to see is that there's two parallel lines here. Because then he goes on, he says, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Isn't that interesting? So in this rebellion... Uh, there, there's there's this, this choosing of a king, and it was clear that Israel rejected God and desired a king, yet God permitted a king to be set over them. And so this, in my, in my opinion, is a clear case of the permissive will of God. Um, there's been some discussion around this. Uh, I've had some conversations around this recently with different members of the church. It, does God have many different wills? Yes, he has different wills. Isn't that strange? Well, yeah, kind of, but it's true. He has his sovereign decreative will, which will not be thwarted, and what he has decreed shall come to pass. Good luck undoing that. Good luck standing against him. He will do it. If he said it, he will do it. And not any one of us can stand in his way. Then he's given us his, his precepts and his perceptive will, which means his laws, and he wrote them down for us, and he wrote them here, and he wrote them in our hearts that we would obey him. But he allows us to uh, reject and disobey and break his will as it is that we can go against his word and we can go against his law and we can thwart his will in that sense in one way that he wishes for us to walk in holiness and obedience but he lets us violate that perceptive will but he lets us violate his precepts but then also there's the permissive will of God which is tied very closely to that second one which is the perceptive will of God and the permissive will of God is that he allows us to err he allows us to mess some stuff up. But it isn't out of his control. He isn't surprised by it. He's actually accounted for it. He's not only accounted for it, he's ordained it. 
There's not a single thing that happens in this universe that God has not already seen and ordained. Now, what we have is two parallel lines. Very sticky subject. I'm not going to open the can too, too wide. But the free will of man and the sovereignty of God, both realities that you see in Scripture, that God allows man to make free choices, and yet he's still sovereign and he works good from all of it. Not because he's dealing from the hand that he's dealt, but because he's already ordained it. That he already ordained good would come from it. Not that he takes and picks up the pieces and says, well, this is what I've got to work with. If only you guys would have left me a little bit something better to work with, I could have done even more. That's a false view of God. God says, even what you meant for evil, I meant for good. You want a king? I don't want you to have a king. But even you wanting to have a king is actually going to work great. Because through this line, there will be a king who is the true king, Jesus. Right? There's no new rebellion. No, we shall have a king reign over us, Samuel says, but the Lord was your king. But you've chosen another. But don't forget, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, has set over you. Yahweh has allowed this king to be set over you. Not just allowed, not just permitted, but he set him over you. Do not miss that. Right into the next concept, which we see in verse 13. The Lord has set a king over you. There is no new king. A human king did nothing to remove the true king. And sometimes we get this stuff a little bit mixed up. We have to remind ourselves that in theology, which is the study of God, um, we do make distinctions, that there is a distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they are all equal in their Godship. They are all equally God, yet they're separate and distinct persons. All right, This gets a little fuzzy sometimes for us. But when you think about who the king is, a lot of times we do think of Christ as the king. This is true. He is. But do you know that even in this, I believe uh, this is true, that this, when we, when we see God, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, Yahweh, that is the Trinity. That is, don't just think of it's the Father only, but this is, this is the Trinity reigning over Israel. It's not as if the God of, of the Old Testament is only the Father working and the Son and the Spirit have nothing to do. And they're just twiddling their thumbs for thousands of years until the New Testament comes along. Yahweh has reigned forever and will reign forever. God of gods. When Christ came and died on the cross, it was not Him dying to placate a, a wrathful God. He himself is God. God is no different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. So when we think there is no new king, there is no new king. And Christ is the true king then too. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the true kings. And that's weird to say, plurality and unity, because it also says, for the Lord our God is one. But we struggle through that. Our finite minds struggle, but the truth still remains. There is no new king. There never will be a new king. And just simply because Israel chose a man to sit in a seat, to be able to make some decisions, did nothing, had no impact on who was still the king. Do you get that? There is no new king. Samuel's like, you think you got a new king. 
The Lord was your king, and he's still your king because he put the person over you. And then what happens next is this uh, incredible um, just narrative. He says, verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, look at this, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Do you get that? Samuel's like, you guys think you got something quick going on here. Hmm. No new rules. If you and your king, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll include your king. Cool, great. You still both have to obey me. And if you obey me, it will go well with you. Do you see that? If you fear the Lord, serve him and obey his voice, and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, they're not thwarting God. They're not, they're not saying, oh, this yoke will be removed from us now that we have a new king. God expects the exact same thing from them as he's always expected. Servant and obedience. Do not rebel. And if you both, you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. There's this promise. But then he goes on. Rebel and the Lord will be against you and your king. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And then what God does next is this, just this display of power. He's got to shake them up. Have you ever, have you ever had, had that in your life where you're just, you're just kind of stuck in a, your own whatever it is and you just need someone to grab you and just wake you up, right? And my father was always really good at it. I'd be so mad. I'm like, I'm up against the world. No one's going to, you know. And my dad was able to be like, pow, and I'd be like, yes, sir, I'm good. Everything's good, right? Have you ever had that? I've had one of those experiences with a, with a child recently and many, many, many warnings, many, many warnings. And then they're just spitting, you know, like literally spitting at me. And I'm like, all right, I, ha- I have to do something. And so all I have to do is just look mean, you know, go, stop it. And then they're like, yes, daddy, yes, daddy. Right? You, you've, got, you've got those times in your life where you have to be snapped out of it. And I believe that this is one of those displays of God's like, I'm going to get your attention in this moment. I don't mean you harm, but I mean to wake you up. And so what God does, look at this in in verse 16. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Stop there. Is it not wheat harvest today? When's harvest time? That's the time to go collect the fruit that you have labored over, time to pull, time to pluck, time to gather, time to sell, right? And it's not usually the time when we'd have these great storms coming. And if we do have a great storm, it's actually a bad thing because it threatens our harvest. It threatens our produce. It threatens our livelihood. So don't let this, don't let this imagery be lost on you. Now therefore stand and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I can imagine Samuel asking that question and everyone going, uh, yeah, what are you going to do with it? I imagine that. What are you, what are you going to do? Like, it's, imagine this. Have you not gotten paid today? Right? And you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> what are you planning to do with it? 
And he goes on. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall see and know that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Do you get this? This is, this is an out-of-season storm that threatened to destroy their crops. And what's also interesting is who else was standing there with them? Saul. Imagine he's you got this got this king because he's already been chosen. He's been anointed. He's been put in place, and now he's going to be there too. Imagine him seeing this great display of God's power and hearing these things. And so this is effective in snapping them out of it. Because look, verse nineteen: the people confess their sin. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all the sins. Right? We have added to all our sins this evil. What evil? To ask for ourselves a king. Do you see this? Consider the addition statement here. Added to all our sins. And this is actually what God had already said to Samuel in chapter 8. If you look back there, he's, he says that this is how they've been since I've delivered them out of Egypt. This is, this is how they've treated me. They've continued to reject me. This, isn't, this, isn't no new, this is no new thing. This is no new rebellion. Them asking for a king is nothing new. And they say it. That out of their mouths, they confess it. Pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. So what we've got to see here is that there's, this is what God has done to snap them out of it. And I would encourage you to recognize the moments in your life where God does the same thing. Where he brings or allows something to rock you, to snap you out of it, to see the sin that you're living in, and to get you to confess it. Not because he's a God who says, I need you to feel really, really bad about yourself and tell me all the bad things that you feel about yourself and all the bad things you've ever done because I get great pleasure in hearing all of that stuff. That's not what he's like. What he's like is, here's what's best for you, and that's obeying and serving and loving me because I'm your maker. I know how you're wired. I made you. And as you chase after all these other things looking for fulfillment, you're destroying yourself. Stop it. And so he's got, he's got ways to get our attention. And sometimes I believe that we are able to sin most freely when we are most comfortable. Take, a, take, a, take an inventory of your own life. In the times when you are sinning most freely, were you not most comfortable? What happens when sickness hits you? What happens when a loved one is about to die? Do you not go to your knees before God and pray? Do you not consider your life? And sometimes there's been times in my life where, where literally that's been my prayer, and it's a scary prayer to say, Lord, I'm very comfortable, and I know that when I am comfortable, I am most likely to rebel. I start to not think I need you. 
I start thinking, I've done some great things in my life. I start thinking, I'm pretty good. And so there's a, there's a very dangerous prayer that I encourage you to pray, is to ask God to remove the things that bring you comfort, that cause you to be flippant in your sin. Pray to God to remove comfort from your life so that you might see clearly. And this is part of what I believe he has done to Israel to shake them for a second. They confess their sin. They, con they confess that this isn't the only evil thing they've done. This is addition added to all our sins to ask for a king. But what's really interesting, if you remember back in chapter 7, whenever the people had done evil for a long time, 20 years, the ark's been away, and then what they came and did was they, they started to come to Samuel and say, we, we want to get our lives right. And Samuel said to, to them, if today you are turning to the Lord, here's some things you need to do, one of which, forsake your idols. Do you remember that? Back in 7? And so what did they do? They said, intercede for us, pray for us. And Samuel says, okay, meet me up at Mizpah, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll do something there. They get there, they dump out the water before the Lord. Samuel cuts the throat of, of a lamb and sacrifices at a whole burnt offering for the people and intercedes for them. They confess, repent, and they turn. The Ark of the Covenant comes back. Well, here we are in chapter 12. So in 7, they confess their idolatry, no different. Chapter 12, they're confessing their idolatry in a different way, which is their unholy desire for a human king. Do you see this? And so they pray. This isn't the first sin. They've, they, they've done nothing to remove the true king of kings. And he still rules over them and still expects them to be right and to walk holy before him. Now, are you ready for the gospel? <laughs> but this is part of the truth that we've got to see the reality of our sins before we can hear the hope that is offered in the gospel. Before Samuel can offer these people hope, they need to come to the realization of their depravity. And it's no different today. So for the, the last few minutes that we have together, I want to finish on our third stop. No new principle. Comfort, admonish, and exhort. Pick it up in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Or do not fear. Hold on to that. Stop right there and hold on to that. Because I, I believe we ought to be comforted knowing that God receives broken and sinful people. And, 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 and what we have to recognize is that when we confess our sins before him, when we come to him looking for comfort and protection, that is what we receive. When we come to God broken over our sins and ask for deliverance, literally what we hear is, do not be afraid. We are comforted. Have you ever been so broken in your sins? And if you haven't, I want to push gently on you and maybe maybe ask you to consider your own salvation. And I know you're like, who are you to say that to me? I'm your friend. If you've never been broken over your sins, I invite you to question whether or not you ever actually came to Christ for forgiveness of your sins. 
But have you ever been in that spot where you're so broken over your sins where maybe you're on your knees and literally you're just, you're just done. You're, you literally say to God, if you don't save me, I'm completely done. And the last thing that you need to hear in that moment is how greatly evil you are. You come looking for just a little hope, a little relief. Have you ever counseled anyone who's come to you broken in their sins? I pray that your first response is, is, I can't believe you did that. I hope that's not what you say. I hope you don't crush them in their weakness and vulnerability and tenderness when they come to you. I pray that you comfort them first. It's not, it's not wrong to comfort them first. But if you comfort them only, you are wrong. This is what, this is, what is laid out for us in Scripture. And I know you may be thinking, man, Rob, sure are getting a lot out of a sentence. Yep. Pay attention to the scriptures. It will teach us. Do not be afraid. What literally is happening here is he is comforting the people who are broken, who have confessed their sins. But he doesn't stop with this comfort. He goes on to admonish. Look at this. You have done all this evil. Do you see that? Do not be afraid, but here's the truth. What you've done is evil. He admonishes them. He tells them the reality of the situation. And it is right for us to see the sinfulness of our rebellion. It is right for us to see the things that we have done are so evil, so incredibly evil. This is part of what it means to be admonished. It's a time, there is a time for us to feel the weight of our sin and to sit in the pain of it. To taste the poison of it and to recognize how bitter it is. There's a time for us to recognize how weighty it is and to, to recognize how painful it is to confess our sins to God and confess our sins to others. And maybe that's something you need to consider today. Have you confessed your sin to God and have you con confessed your sin to others? Because you know what's really dangerous? And I'm, I'm telling you from experience is to keep all of your sins secret. To never confess them. Incredibly dangerous. You know what's beautiful about confessing your sin and being broken before God and before other people? is you experience that humility of sitting in front of people who you love and who you trust and you tell them, here's where I went wrong and I'm so ashamed of it. When you do that, the next time that sin comes up flirting with you, you remember how sick it made you in the first place. You remember how humbled you were when you confessed that sin before God and before your fellow man. And it helps you reject the poison the second time. I've, I've had the opportunity to counsel people before who've come broken in sin. And the first thing that I'm able to do is comfort them and to say, I too know what it means to be a broken man and know that this is not the end, that God has mercy on those who are broken. God can take this and work good from it. And maybe, perhaps, this thing will be the most clearest example of the gospel you've ever seen. Why? Because you are aware of your sin, but you will also be aware of the mercy of Christ. Now, now that I've comforted you, you must feel the weight and severity of this. If you pass over it too quickly, if you pass over it learning nothing from it, you harm yourself in the future. So he admonishes them and he says, you have done this evil. Yet what I love is he goes on and he exhorts them. 
He says, now turn to the Lord. I believe that this is the gospel, that we are comforted, we are admonished, and then we are exhorted. And it is right for Samuel to exhort the people to turn to the Lord in keeping with their confession and repentance. And I believe this is what we preach as well. We preach people to come and find comfort in Christ, to recognize the severity of their sin, and then to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. And actually, that's part of what we should do as a church, because it's not that we would lose our salvation, but there, are, there is a very real sense in which we are, are on the verge, when we're walking in sin, from being cast out of fellowship. And I want to throw one example up there. I know it's a heavy note to end on. But consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul tells the church to purge the evil person from among them. That man in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife, refusing to repent of his great evil. Do you know what Paul told the church to do? Told them to purge this man, remove him, turn him over to the devil, that if his, if his flesh is destroyed, may his soul be saved. So if we are flirting with sin... We've got to recognize the severity of the situation. Don't let the comfort go too far. If the comfort causes us not to be admonished or exhorted, then we've only gotten part of the gospel because the gospel is that there is peace and security and rest for those who come to Christ. Yet from now on, walk in holiness before the Lord. And that's exactly what Samuel tells them. And he warns them, he says, moreover, as for me, be it far from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Consider that this morning. There's a charge for us to walk in holiness, not taking the gospel grace for granted.